You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today, I have a wonderful opportunity of introducing our special guest, Teresa Briggs. Teresa has been at Deloitte for 26 years. I'm going to guess that some of you haven't been alive for 26 years, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and she spent the first 18 years in the audit practice at Deloitte. And she actually assumed she would be doing that for the rest of her career. But a very interesting twist happened, and she was asked to join the mergers and acquisitions group and she loved it, it was fascinating. But then the New York office pulled her away, she went to New York and worked on corporate strategy. And just two and a half years ago was asked by Deloitte to come out to San Francisco, come out to the Bay Area and run the Silicon Valley practice. She has amazing stories to tell us about innovation, entrepreneurship and uh, leadership within this very exciting company. So, Teresa, without further ado. Okay, thank you. I'm going to start by asking you guys all a question. So I'd like to know, what do you think of when you think of Deloitte? If anything, just throw something out. Anybody? Accounting. Okay, accounting. Taxes. Taxes. Audit. Audit, okay. Consulting. Consulting. Okay. All of those things are part of what Deloitte is. Uh, and I'll get an, into some examples of what we are in a couple of minutes. But I wanted to kind of test your knowledge about the brand to start out with. And you hit many of the things that we do at the highest level. Now you might wonder why is someone from Deloitte who does all of those things um, speaking at this speaker series, right? I mean, entrepreneurship, innovation. Well, our founders were actually entrepreneurs. At age 25, William Welsh Deloitte started his first accountancy office in London in 1845. And if you think I'm old, then he's really old, right? And he's dead. Um, uh, later, in 1893, he opened an office in New York. And he was responsible for developing standards that became the accounting standards for hotels. He was also asked to unravel a really serious um, fraud at that time in the Great Northern Railroad. And that would be the equivalent today of being asked to unravel the Bernie Madoff situation, if you've been reading about that, right? So massive fraud. Uh, so he was an innovator around some of those things. Um, George Touche had a flair for helping doomed businesses survive. And in 1900, he opened Touche Niven and Company, so 1900. Uh, he later became a member of parliament. And he was such a significant civic contributor that he was knighted in the year 1917. <coughs> So keep those words in mind, founder, innovator, civic contributor, and spin forward many years and through many mergers to the firm that we call Deloitte today. Uh, so you pointed out some of the things we are, accounting firm, auditing, consulting, tax. Uh, we think of ourselves as a broad-based professional services firm. So what does that mean? Well, at the very highest level, uh, a way to think about that is, oops, forgot to advance my slide. Uh, is our job and what we really pride ourselves in is that we enhance shareholder value and we protect shareholder value, okay? So a couple of examples. So when we enhance shareholder value, we do things like uh, one of my clients, we're helping um, two companies that merged rationalize their go-to-business model. One company sold their products directly to their customer and one sold them through a third-party OEM. So they had to rationalize those two go-to-market models to be able to be successful in executing this merged company. Another example of one of my other clients is we're helping them understand whether their SAP system can handle the uptime requirements for a 24 by 7 global online consumer store. And this is a really large um, global consumer business that's trying to figure this out. And in helping them do things like that, we help them enhance our shareholder value by helping make them more successful. On the flip side, when we protect shareholder value, uh, we do things like audits, and an audit is an important part of our financial markets function functioning properly. So when companies have an audit, that means that investors can go into the markets and buy securities on the confidence that the financial information they're reading has been certified by an auditor. So that's protecting shareholder value by allowing companies to trade in the market. 
And we also do things like um, help companies ensure that their systems can't be penetrated from the outside. So again, protecting their shareholder value by making sure that we help them protect their risk. All right, so our organization is large. 45,000 people in the US, 165,000 people globally, 140 countries uh, were in all of those places. And you might wonder, again, um, what's so great about being big, right? We're entrepreneurs, we like to be small. How many of you have worked inside of a startup? Raise your hand. Okay, quite a few. So um, some of the things that you get when you're big that you don't get in a startup are things like a help desk and administrative assistance, uh, things that we actually appreciate. Uh, but the big advantage of being big is resources. Uh, being able to, at the drop of a dime, um, tap resources around the globe to add them to your client team and help solve a really complex problem. Uh, that's what you can do when you're big. Uh, but big is not always the best. I think that you have to make big small to be able to drive entrepreneurship and innovation. So find a way to make this kind of an organization, uh, turn it into bite-sized pieces. And what I'm going to do today is walk you through four examples of ways that we've made big small. And you could, you could use this um, analogy or these the same type of examples inside of other organizations, but I know my organization, so I'll use my examples, uh, of making big small and driving innovation in a large organization. And I'll start with my own example. So Tina mentioned that I run our Silicon Valley practice. And I've been doing that for about two and a half years. Uh, when I run that practice, it's like running a small business inside, though, of a very large business. But I have a lot of autonomy to run the practice the way it needs to be run to serve the technology market you know, 30 miles away from here. So a couple of things I'm trying to do, uh, double the size of our practice from 600 people to 1,200 people. So that's a lot of headcount to add. Uh, drive our market share into the tech companies to a greater extent, uh, build a research and thought leadership center, which I'll talk about in a minute, and deliver a 30% return on investment back to the bigger firm from the efforts in Silicon Valley. So just like a regular business or a business unit. So I do the same kind of things that you would do in any other business. I've formed my team. We developed our strategies, our tactics, put together some metrics so that we would know whether we were making progress and being successful. We built a recruiting organization and an onboarding process so we could onboard 600 people. That's a lot of people. And so forth. Lots of the same things you would do in a regular business. So uh, you can be small inside of big. And that's just one example. Another example I mentioned is our research center. We have this belief that um, thinking needs to be at the edge in order to really ultimately add value to our clients. So we formed the Center for Edge Innovation. And this center is um, helping technology companies shape their marketplace versus being shaped by market forces. So to be out in front and actually leading into change instead of following market trends. And that's the, the basis of what the center is really studying. Uh, our center leaders are responsible for over 500 papers and six uh, best-selling books, and I want to tell you a little bit about them because this is, um, again, one of my uh, examples of being able to innovate inside of a big organization. So we went out and decided we wanted to find some of the most eminent um, folks in technology to bring into our center. So how many of you have heard of John Seeley Brown? Anybody? A few of you? Okay. So John Seeley Brown co-leads our center. John Seeley Brown was the chief scientist at Xerox for many years, and he ran Xerox Park right here in Palo Alto. And you guys know that Xerox Park was responsible for many of the innovations that we take for granted even today in Silicon Valley. So John, or he's re referred to as JSB, uh, ran Park, and now he co-leads our center. John Hagel was a partner at McKinsey for a long, a long time. He's a very prolific writer and a, a speaks a lot and uh, really comes more from the business angle, and JSB comes more from the technology angle. So the merger of those two is a really great combination. And then Lang Davison was the um, editor of the McKinsey Quarterly for 12 years, and we were able to hire him away, and the three of them make up the leadership on, in our center. Uh, their work can be found in businessweek.com every month. They're in Fortune and Forbes in that periodical on the other side of the country, um, Harvard Business Review. 
and so they're very, um, they're, they're, they're very well respected for their writing. Um, they have a lot of active blogs as well. Uh, their ideas are not just the subject of uh, papers and books, though. Their ideas are actually put into motion through vetting their ideas with Silicon Valley business leaders and iterating on their ideas so that when we're ready to actually take something to market and help companies actually drive some changes in their strategies, uh, we know that it's going to work because we've vetted it with businesses. So it's um, a very collaborative process with our clients. Now, um, we have a program inside the EDGE Center called our EDGE Fellowship Program. And what's neat about this is our senior consultants and our managers, so folks like you who've been out of school for three to, say, seven years, can take a six-month or 12-month spin into the center and work side-by-side -side with John, JSB, and Lang and work with them on the research themes, um, work in the field with clients, conducting interviews, and really helping to derive the themes of the center. And then they go back into their client work and bring all that knowledge with them. So within our research center, we have this neat little program called the EDGE Fellowship Program. So again, an example of how inside of a big organization, you can carve out these you know, niches, and in this case, it's a, a, a niche research center that's focused on tech and strategy. Now one of the things that they've been writing about that I wanted to share with you is about big wave surfing. How many of you have heard of the Mavericks Surf Contest out in Half Moon Bay? Some of you may have even wandered out there, right? So John and JSB decided to study the Mavericks Surf Contest last year and figure out if there were, uh, if there were corollaries between innovation in surfing and innovation in business. And they actually concluded that there are quite a lot of corollaries between those two. So I wanted to share a couple of them with you. Uh, surfers search for breaks in the water. and Maybe some of you are surfers, right? Breaks in the water way offshore so that they can uh, ride bigger and rougher waves and really test board designs and test surfing practices. Well, the corollary for business is if you want to push your performance levels, find the relevant edge. Right? Push yourself, like the surfers do, out to those big breaks and those big waves. They also discovered that surfers gather and they observe each other to notice things in other people's performance that they can apply to their own. Right? So for business, the, the learning was, attract motivated groups of people to the edges and have them work together to improve performance. So working together out on the edge. Uh, it's, this one's kind of obvious. You just look at the guy on the screen on a surfboard. Uh, surfers are risk takers. I mean, that's a pretty tough thing to do, to be riding that huge wave. And the lesson for business in that is reward your risk takers, because sometimes they're driving the most innovative ideas. They also discovered that the edge, or it's obvious, the edge fosters people who are edgy, right? So if you think of surfers and you think of surf bums, they seem kind of edgy. Uh, that's all about diversity. So the learning for business is to celebrate diversity. And then um, it's no accident, apparently, that most surfers are excellent shapers of surfboards. And so for business, the learning there is mixed practitioners and developers. And Tina, you probably teach lots of these lessons in your innovation classes. But this is what John and JSB learned from big wave surfing. And if you want to check out the whole article, it's on businessweek.com. You can just go, uh, search on Hegel. So another uh, thing that they've written about, which you probably are more familiar with than me, is World of Warcraft. How many of you are familiar with World of Warcraft? Okay, quite a few. Uh, the article that we've left in the back, and some of you have it, but if not, pick it up on the way out, is an article that they've recently written about World of Warcraft. And in this article, they believe that World of Warcraft, in its structure and its scoring, actually demonstrate fundamental principles for training employees to think creatively with no training program anywhere in sight. And they think business should be thinking more about how to provide interactive learning like World of Warcraft. So take a look at the article if you want to read a little bit more about that. So those are some of the things that our Edge Center is writing about. Um, not very traditional, uh, a little edgy, and a, a little bit um, provocative. Now I want to turn to the for-profit sector, um, more of a client focus, and talk about uh, in a way of innovating uh, relative to client work. So several years ago, and far before his time, we had a senior manager whose name was David Rips, 
And he believed that the traditional two-tier model for distributing digital media wasn't going to work in the long run. Uh, today and, and then, a content creator like Disney has to distribute its content to iTunes, to Amazon, to NBC, Comcast, you know, multiple points of distribution. And then that point of distribution, like Comcast, has to turn around and distribute the content to, in Comcast's case, the TV. And ultimately, people are going to demand it on the PC and on various mobile devices. And uh, David's view was that this model was far too complex for the current players to execute, that it couldn't scale, and that it, the players themselves hadn't recognized that yet. So he saw an opportunity to innovate around the model for distributing digital content. His view was based on two assumptions. Number one, that consumer demand is predictable. His view was that consumers, all of you, and I know this is true for me, want consolidation. They want one subscription to their media through a type of digital media menu. They want one bill, and they want their content available on any device that they choose, right? Sounds simple. And why wouldn't you want that? The second assumption was that media will never travel alone in the future, that it will, it will start to travel with user-specific ads that are customized for the receiver of the content. And it will also contain other interactive elements when it travels. The practical ramifications of that uh, have kept the industry from really moving forward to that vision of that you know, digital media menu, you know, one subscription, one bill. And if you do the math, and you guys will know uh, this better than I do, but if you do the math on what it takes to deliver real on-demand content, and I'm going to read this to you because there's lots of numbers in it, but based on our modeling, and we think it's conservative, to provide one hour of cable TV to a 1.5 Nielsen rated audience through a type of digital media menu requires over 8,000 copies of the same file, which represents 25 terabytes of data, and assuming only half the people who order the show watch it the first time it's available, that's 850,000 simultaneous processing threads moving at 2.7 terabytes per second. And that's more technology than anyone can provide today. Now, it's not impossible, but um, David believed, and, and we believe, that it's a scale that's just far beyond today's telecom and media companies. So David believed that this implied the need for a digital utility that would play a new role in media distribution that didn't exist today. And so this is the challenge that he was trying to solve. And to address the challenge, David actually envisioned the concept of a three-tier model. And he started to evangelize his views of this three-tier model inside Deloitte and outside Deloitte to see you know, if he could you know, get someone to challenge it. And his view was that in this three-tier model, a content creator would distribute the content not directly to the end retailer, but through a clearinghouse, a digital, dis digital distribution clearinghouse. So you can see on the model here, that's shown in the middle. That clearinghouse would turn around and serve the content to the end user through bandwidth intensive channels. Now the, the way to think of this is, um, do you guys know the Sabre network? Do you know what that is? The Sabre network actually sits between um, travel content creators like Avis and American Airlines and Starwood Hotels and retailers like Travelocity and Expedia. So the Sabre network was developed to literally do what David believes we need to do with digital, digital media. And there are other examples in business that are similar to that, that are, you know, it's kind of an established three-tier model, but that model hasn't been introduced yet into the uh, digital media. So David was given the funding to lead a team to build out uh, all of the IP behind this, and only in the last year has this really taken off in the market. So we've had the opportunity to meet with dozens of companies and talk to them about what we're now calling the Deloitte Digital Media Framework. And um, we've completed several engagements that are actually based on starting to implement this model. And it's far more complex than I can give it uh, justice to in this short little 10 minutes. But if you're interested, there is a flyer that you may have picked up, but if not, it's there on your way out that describes it in a little more detail. And um, I also have one of my partners here, Pete Ryder. You can raise your hand, Pete. And Pete would be happy to answer any of your more detailed questions if you have questions in the Q&A. So now I want to move to an example of innovation in the nonprofit sector. 
So David was an example of innovating relative to the for-profit sector. And I think we have a, a kind of a cool innovative thing going on around the nonprofit sector at Deloitte. So we believe that doing well allows you to do good, okay? That, you know, that's doing well by your communities allows us to do well as an organization. And we have a very strong commitment to the community that um, involves a 360 degree view. So we believe in serving on boards, donating money, volunteering time, and uh, donating services through a program we call our Pro Bono Program. And our Pro Bono Program basically takes our skill sets that we deliver to the for-profit world and we deliver those same skill sets to the nonprofit world for free. And we don't do this on our spare time. We do it during the workday. Um, our people are scheduled just like they'd be scheduled to work on a for-profit client. They go out and work at a nonprofit on issues that are very strategic and important to that organization, but for which they don't have the skill sets or talents to address themselves. So RAFT is um, the example that I'm going to give you. RAFT stands for Resource Area for Teachers. And RAFT is an organization based in San Jose. And it's an organization that we provide pro bono services for out of our Silicon Valley practice. Now nationally, we have a $50 million commitment over three years to provide that level of pro bono services into communities across the country. And so RAFT is an example of a piece of that $50 million that we're delivering into um, our community here. The way we value these services is just like we would value our services that we sell to a for-profit client, uh, we just we value it at the same amount that we would bill someone who is actually paying us. Our people get a lot of um, a lot out of the the nonprofit service. So a lot of times these organizations have the same issues that a for-profit organization would have, but they don't have the money or the funding, of course, to solve it themselves. And it allows our people to come in and look at a problem from start to finish and see it get implemented and see the result in a fairly short period of time because the organizations are small. And it allows people to feel really good about uh, making a difference in our community. So I have a little video, just very short, two minutes, to show you what RAFT is all about. And we have a little bit of a challenge with our audio, so am I plugged in? Okay, let me see if this works. for teachers, it's a very teacher-friendly place to come. In fact, if you uh, listen to teachers, they'll walk around and go, wow, this is teacher heaven. Oh, I found all kinds of things. Something to hold um, calculators in and some math materials. We do um, crystal growing, and I got these so that I can do it in these disposable or reusable trays. So, I'm happy. Since 1995, RAFT has been serving the needs of teachers and students throughout Silicon Valley and the Bay Area. The idea behind RAFT is simple. Since hands-on learning is the best way for children to learn, RAFT supports teachers by providing both the ideas and materials to teach in this way. By collecting tons of reusable materials that businesses would otherwise throw away, RAFT creates innovative learning activities which make a big difference in the way teachers teach and in the way children learn. First of all, it's recycling material. We can use it to do something in our classroom that's really, really useful. You can get a lot of really great gum bargains at RAFT, but you can also get a lot of really great ideas. So, I mean, I would never have come up with a game without the lids where you can get where the kids can guess and check on their own. Based in its own warehouse in San Jose, RAFT is helping more than 6,000 teachers make learning in their classrooms an engaging experience for their students from preschool through high school. Throughout the year, teachers from all over the Bay Area converge on the Raft Warehouse to grab up these materials for their classrooms and their students. Investing relatively small amounts of money and a good deal of their spare time, these teachers have come to depend on Raft to allow them to teach the way that children love to learn. 
we're taking teachers who are good teachers and making them great teachers uh, just by giving them the resources that they need and the support that they need. Okay, I think you get the idea. So uh, you can probably tell from the video what RAF does is they actually gather up uh, materials that companies were going to throw away. Things like marbles and discs and bottle cap tops and cardboard tubes and foil caps. And they actually have engineers on their staff that create science projects out of the materials that the companies donate. So they don't, they don't know what they're going to get all the time from the companies. So when they get, you know, someone drops off a big old crate full of discs, the engineers go to work trying to figure out how do you make science projects out of all the stuff we have. And then what they do is they package them up in little, you know, single unit packages, and teachers can buy them very inexpensively. And I don't know if you know this, but in the state of California, uh, our public school teachers spend thousands of dollars of their own money each year buying supplies to, to be able to deliver things like this to their classroom because they don't have state funding to allow them to do creative things like science projects. So um, what teachers do is instead of spending a lot of money on these science project materials, they can go to Raft and get very inexpensive science kits and deliver cool projects to their classrooms. So um, they might be able to buy enough uh, materials to serve 20 kids for $1, for instance. So they might get a kit to make 20 of these kaleidoscopes for a dollar. So when you guys leave today, there's a box in the back, and it has the little kits that are unassembled. And so grab one, and there's eight different projects in the, in the box. And when you're out with your friends tonight, you know, grabbing a beer, you can you know, build a you know, CD spinner or a little kaleidoscope and um, see what we're teaching to our public school kids these days. So Raft, of course, was very consistent with something that we care about a lot, which is education. And so we decided to invest using this 360-degree philosophy in Raft. So we volunteer time at Raft. We had about 45 people at Raft about six months ago. Um, spent the whole day with Raft, um, helping them with a special project they had for a group of that size. We give them money. We actually have um, one of our senior managers, who's a Stanford alum, who's here today, Jeff Benish. Where's Jeff? In the back. Uh, Jeff is actually on Raft's board, and he's the chairman of the board. And the way he became chairman of the board is he led one of these pro bono projects at Raft. And they loved him so much, and they were so grateful for the project, and it helped them with a very important piece of their strategy that they asked Jeff to join their board, and then ultimately asked him to become the chairman of their board. So it's a really great example of this you know, innovative concept we have of 360-degree focus on the community and pro bono services. Now this chart that, of course, you can't see very well, there we go. Is um, this is just one page from a, a, the output of the pro bono project that Jeff led, and what the project was focused on was Raft wanted to geographically expand. They have one facility in San Jose, this huge warehouse that you saw in the video, and they wanted to set up a facility in San Mateo County to do the same thing. And they had this view that they could leverage their costs, and if they could produce more kits. They could actually serve more kids, and they could leverage their cost structure and expand. Well, when we actually got inside their numbers, and we spent three months analyzing their management structure, their um, cost structure, their, which would, you know, was really looking at their fixed costs versus their variable costs, their revenue sources, uh, what we discovered is it was a very low fixed cost model. The costs were all variable. Really, the only fixed cost was staff R&D, so the engineers that actually developed the ideas for the, the kits themselves. And almost everything else was a variable cost. And so expansion didn't mean you know, leveraging your fixed costs across more units. It meant you had to go raise more dollars for every kit that you produced. And they didn't realize this. So this was a really important finding for them because they could have you know, gone off on their expansion program using the wrong assumption. So uh, it caused them to ask questions like, well, gee, maybe we should just set up a totally separate nonprofit and just replicate Raft San Jose in Raft San Mateo County and you know, do it that way. Or maybe we should have an IP company where we hold the IP and franchise Raft around the Bay Area. Uh, so they're still in the process of looking at different models. And all of that came out of the project that we did with Raft. 
And sometimes um, the most important thing that comes out of a project like this is getting the board uh, to ask the right questions and have the right debates and come to the right conclusions. Uh, and that is exactly what happened in this project. There was a lively debate at the board level. You know, Jeff was there conducting the meeting. And it really set them on a different course than they might have gone down had we not been able to do this project for them. And of course, you know, the greatest reward for us was to be able to do something that helped an organization, that helps teachers, that help kids, right? Uh, so that was fantastic. And that's along this theme of doing well means doing good. And uh, that's really part of our value system is, you know, being a good community partner. And it makes me really proud to be a leader at a firm like mine. So four examples of uh, making big small. So the first was uh, creating a small business inside of a big business. So my practice in Silicon Valley. The second was creating a state-of-the-art research center inside of a market like Silicon Valley focused on the technology market. The third was David Ripps creating the Deloitte Digital Media Framework inside of this large organization and being able to advocate for it and get it funded and deliver it into the market. And the fourth is um, providing uh, great projects like this into the community. So I hope that that inspires you to bring your entrepreneurial spirit um, into larger organizations like ours because we would love to um, have the benefit of some of uh, this brilliance that's sitting in the room. So thank you for being here. And um, I think we have plenty of time for questions. And I have my two partners here who can also help me respond to questions. Consulting. Oh, sure. Yeah, the question was, in our business in Silicon Valley, which service uh, creates the greatest amount of our revenue? And the answer to that question is our consulting practice. Uh, that's about 70, 60% mm, of our revenue, I would say, in Silicon Valley. And then within that consulting practice, the type of services that creates the most revenue are probably our... Um, our technology services, which are you know, really include um, like transforming companies through putting in global ERP systems and all of the things that go around that, um, the tax ramifications of that, the control ramifications of that. So, does that answer your question? Well, and, and would that be any different uh, in terms of the within the uh, consulting business, the emphasis on technology? How different might that be from an office elsewhere in a country like, say, Chicago? Yeah, quite different. So 60 plus percent consultative is um, quite high uh, on the consulting side. Uh, in most offices, the um, consulting side would maybe be 35 percent or so. Audit would take up a much bigger chunk. In tech, we actually have just a really large consulting footprint. In that respect, what you're seeing today, at least in Silicon Valley, across all three of your practices with tax, audit, consulting, just some general overviews as uh, you know, we're seeing some pretty dramatic things happen. Are you seeing any growth businesses, any bright spots within tax, audit? Obviously, as you know, banks are uh, having trouble, there's probably a lot of tax and audit work, but maybe there's also some consulting work to fix problems that are now rearing uh, an apparent. Yeah, so the question is, um, what are we seeing across our different businesses as a result of the economy? And are there any bright spots of maybe counter-cyclical services that are actually up while the economy goes down? Does that capture it? So it's a really interesting market. Uh, a lot of times we'll run, um, one of our businesses will be up when another one's down. But right now, there's pressure on all of our businesses at the same time. Uh, the um, consulting market is discretionary spend for companies for the most part. And so when everyone decides to tighten their spending, they'll, they'll start to cut out discretionary projects. And so you know, there's, there's pressure that's put on our consulting practice. Tax got a little gift from the regulators recently. Uh, there were some new regulations that came out around what's called transfer pricing, which is uh, the, the, the the, the amount of dollars that one part of a company charges another part of the company to move goods cross-border is probably the simplest way to capture it. And these new regs require companies to do a lot of stuff, and we, we, we can help them with that. 
So that part of the business gets a little boost, right, because the regulators just put in a new regulation. Um, the audit practice, there's a ton of pressure on pricing. There's a lot of capacity in the industry right now because I don't know if you guys know what Sarbanes was, but it was a bunch of regulation around um, auditors and audits and internal controls inside of companies. And so um, that created a lot of work for auditors and a lot of work for companies, and that's kind of on the downhill slide, so that work is tailing off a little bit because the regulations have been eased a bit. And so um, there's a lot of capacity in the industry, which creates pricing pressure, right? It's like just following a standard economic model. And um, so the bright spots are, unfortunately, reorganization services. So there's a lot of bankruptcies. Uh, fraud investigations are picking up. And that's another you know, economic countercyclical service. And um, you know, an example that, uh, that you'll relate to, you guys heard, have you heard of Satyam? That name ring a bell. It's a big Indian outsourcing company. They announced a few weeks ago that they had a billion dollars worth of um, cash on their balance sheet. Actually, was was it wasn't really there. So they had there was they were fraudulently reporting their financial results. And so we're doing a bunch of work at Satyam to investigate um, that. So there's there's some funny counter cyclical services like that. But you know, at the same time, we are still seeing companies invest in infrastructure. So some companies have the perspective that I want to come out of the downturn stronger, so I'm going to fix some of my problems now. I'm going to fix my systems. I'm going to do some mergers. So in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of cash on companies' balance sheets, and valuations are coming down. So that creates an opportunity for companies to buy and perhaps merge with some, some players who are weakened by the economic situation. And that merged company will then be stronger when we come out of the, the downturn. So. Here. When you look at consulting services and as companies have gone from you know multiple instances of SAP to fewer instances, if you look at a post-ERP world, especially in light of your edge centers, mm -hmm. do you have any thoughts in terms of where you think companies are going to be spending their money on technology, you know, 36 months or, or longer from now? I might ask Pete if he has a perspective on that. Maybe I should repeat the question. The question was, um, given the consolidation of multiple instances of um, within ERP systems to less instances, um, over the next 24 to 36 months, as that cycle runs through, uh, what do we think companies are going to be spending their technology dollars on? Yeah, I think it's, yeah. I mean, it's a tough question. I think once people do their consolidation, they're going to be looking at how technology so from an SAP standpoint, that's really managing your business from an operational standpoint more effectively. There's a point at which there's going to be a tipping point when, when things start coming back and people start looking at ways to increase their revenue and ways they can they can use technology to enhance that. So the example that we gave around around uh, um, uh, high tech companies who are potentially going to start selling services for new revenue generating services. So there's a possibility along those lines. Um, the kinds of integration that you see, the kinds of ideas that social networking has provided, technology is going to become an um, innovative force for enterprise networking. So you get you get companies who are doing SaaS kinds of things right now. They're delivering their services instead of selling their services from a package standpoint, selling their services over the internet. There's a whole series of technology implications around that. So they're going to be changing business models. People are going to start looking at those things now that they've got their back office straight, they're, they're, you know, they can manage their operations effectively. I think those are the kinds of things, maybe not in the short term, right, as people are addressing what's going on, but I think that's the kind of you know, forward thinking stuff that people are doing around technology. Thank you. Teresa, Tom Kosnick, in 1993, um, I think it was that year that Deloitte was really first recognized as a leader in um, companies that were great places for people to work, great places for women to work, great places for men and women to work who wanted to have great careers but also have uh, family. Um, what's the latest on that? I mean, you are, are you're running the Silicon Valley office. We're in a downturn. Um, what happens to that strong part of the uh, Deloitte brand that's been there for a really long time in a downturn? Yeah, so the question is, um, Deloitte's been known for a long time for its, um, its uh, practices around um, uh, being a great place to work for everyone, being a great place to work for women, and what happens in a downturn to 
programs and, and, and value systems like that. Uh, and the reason I call it a value system is because uh, that what you just mentioned is actually part of our value system. It wasn't a program that came and went. Uh, we have a real philosophy around um, creating an environment that is a fair and even an equal place for everyone to work. And that's men and women and, and everyone of diversity, you, know, you name the flavor of diversity. And so um, that's not changing. Uh, we're, uh, our, our philosophy in addition to that is you don't give benefits away, give them out and then take them away. So we're holding firm and fast on our employee benefits. And the fortune list just came out, uh, just hit the newsstands this week. And Deloitte's um, number 61 on the best places to work list. So we wish we were in the top 10, but we will get back up there someday. So um, we're happy to be among 100 because it's a really elite and prestigious group of um, companies to be a part of. In terms of women, you know, there are a lot of women in the audience. Um, you know, it's, um, you have to recognize that the, the needs for men and women over time become a little bit different in the workplace. And if you have a workplace that can accommodate that, then you're going to retain people longer. And over time, we've adopted a philosophy that that's not just, that doesn't just apply to women, it applies to everyone. And we're rolling out a program right now we call Mass Career Customization. And what that is, is it allows people to customize their career for the place that they're in in their life. So in the beginning of your career, you might be ramped very high on willingness to work, you know, zillions of hours, willingness to travel, you know, whatever it takes, you know, wanting to continue to accelerate your career. And you might hit a place in your career for a variety of reasons. You might um, be an author and you want to write a book, or you might have a baby, or you might you know, have a, a, an ill parent, and you need to decelerate your career in some way. And we're allowing people to customize their careers based on what they need. So if they need less travel, let's dial down on travel. If they need, if they're, if they're willing to accept less kind of you know, upward mobility because they want to flatten out their hours a little bit, let's dial down on the acceleration of their career. And so we're, we're, we're actually rolling that out right now while we're in the downturn, and um, I don't see any of that changing. So thanks for the question. Here we go. Yeah, um, you mentioned that 65 to 70% of the practice here in the Valley is consultancy-based, so roughly the remainder is, is auditing, what have you. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, you know, most entrepreneurs, the first time they interact with a, with a accounting firm is usually the theater of your books, right? Yeah. So, are most of, most of your, what, of your portfolio companies you have here that you're doing audit for, mm -hmm. um, are, they both, are they mostly post B round? Like how you run the companies? Do you guys provide any deferred invoicing program for your companies? <laughs> yep. So, in other words, when do entrepreneurs first see the way? Yeah, good, great question. So, the question is when do entrepreneurs first work with a company like Deloitte? And, um, and you also mentioned that I said 65 to 70% of our revenue is from consulting or consultative services. The balance is from audit related, like tax and audit, stuff like that. So we have 200 companies that are portfolio companies of venture capital firms. Uh, we're pretty selective in the firms we follow, so we like to follow smart money. So we first pick the venture capitalists we want to be affiliated with, and then we target their portfolio companies. So we have 200 of those, and they're in every stage. Uh, so, and it's funny, you wouldn't think this, but one of our clients um, right now is at the printers preparing their S1 for their public offering. And they're actually going to enter this market and try and do an IPO. So, you know, cross your fingers. Um, it's OpenTable. You guys know OpenTable.com? So they're actually going to try and weather this market. So every, every stage from very early startup, when they first feel like they need some financial statements that are certified, to you know, a pre-public company in, in the latest stage possible, like an open table. Now, there's a lot of churn in that portfolio right now that you might imagine, right? So um, some of our clients are um, they're shutting their doors, or they're cutting back their funding. So they're, they're cutting back their costs. And so um, some of the companies are saying, well, maybe we can do an audit every other year and then do two years at a time to save some money. We make a big investment in those portfolio companies. We do those audits for very, very low, low fees. Uh, we lose money on those audits for um, not the entire time that they're pre-public, but it depends how long, right? So if the length of time to get into the public markets continues to extend, 
you know, we lose money almost that entire time. And we then we make our money when the company goes public and then it becomes a public company. And public companies have, you know, you know, they just have you know, greater needs and their fees are higher. So that's our strategy. And um, you know, it's another question around do you weather through the down economy with a portfolio like that? And uh, that's another thing we're not wavering from because we know that the market's going to turn. And we want to be there when the market turns with that portfolio of companies that will hit the public markets at some point. We just don't know when. So client acquisition is basically through VC relationships. Yeah, it's through the, it's really through the whole ecosystem, right? So we get leads from the from the VCs themselves that we have relationships with. We get leads from law firms. We get leads from bankers. So Silicon Valley Bank is a really great um, you know market partner for us, and it comes from all over. And then we do the same thing, right? We cross refer each other all over the place. So there's this cross referral in the valley, is there a cross-referral within the firm? So you have all these different practices that do different things. Does a client move from one group to the next group as their needs change? Yeah, they, they sure do. Um, we have debates all the time in our firm around, um, you know, it, it, should the client be an audit client or should they be a consulting client? Because in the regulatory environment we're in now, you can't really do both. Uh, so Yes, sometimes an audit client will become a consulting client or a consulting client will become an audit client. And that's a, a kind of a business decision that we sit down with the client and talk about in terms of what it is that they need at the time. Another way we cross-collaborate is across borders. So we have some interesting things going on right now with China. Uh, there are some Chinese um, solar companies in particular that are setting up operations in the Bay Area. And so they're audit clients of our China firm and so they're referring work to us as their clients move into the Bay Area and set up uh, operations here. So it works across borders too. Um, from a recruiting standpoint, what are you looking for um, for new employees? In, so uh, the question is um, for um, new employees, what is it that we're looking for when we recruit? And um, you know, there's a whole handful of things. So uh, it ranges everywhere from interpersonal skills, which are really important, right? Because everything we do is interfacing with clients. Uh, if you're not you know, documenting what you've learned from a client, you're asking them questions and um, trying to figure something out with them. So interpersonal skills. Um, intellect, we assume, because we hire at schools like this. And uh, we don't you know, give you an IQ test or anything, but we make sure that your academic performance is high and that your test scores were high. And so we do look at that. And um, we look at things like judgment. So we try and determine, you know, are you a person that has good sound judgment? Because we make judgment calls all the time in the field. Um, Pete, can you think of anything I'm missing? Yeah. Okay, so uh, my name is Jeff Benish. I actually uh, lead our overall uh, relationship with Stanford in addition to all my other jobs within Deloitte. Um, but as part of recruiting, um, last year I actually decided to do a regression analysis of who we actually wound up extending offers to um, at Stanford. And uh, a lot of people said, you know, you, you won't find any patterns. Well, we actually started going through all the resumes of all the people that we had hired, all the people that we had extended offers to, and we actually found really strong correlations. And there were a couple things that, that just popped right out at us. Um, people that we hired tended to have multiple divergent academic pursuits. So for instance, uh, major in MSNE with a, you know, effectively a minor in English Lit. Um, they tended to have um, an entrepreneurial experience or starting their own business at some point in their past. May have been something big, may have been something like starting a boat cleaning business. Um, they tended to have a leadership role in some extracurricular activity, whether it was something like BASIS or SCN or, um, you, know, you know, varsity team leader. And then uh, finally, the most interesting thing was uh, almost everyone spoke a foreign language fairly fluently. Hmm. Um, and uh, I, I was talking with one of our, uh, you know, one of our, you know, real kind of, uh, old dogs about all this analysis. He said, so Jeff, you're telling me, you know, basically we're hiring people who have an open aperture to the world around them. And that, that's probably the best way to describe it. Perfect. Thank you. Forgot we had a resident expert here on Stanford. Other questions? 
I just want to I just want to point out one thing that I forgot to mention at the beginning is that Deloitte has been incredibly generous and supportive of entrepreneurship on campus here, and sort of viewed this as a place where uh, you really can have a big impact on education. And I uh, want to thank you for that. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, I know you talked a little bit about this already, but what is, can you give like more concrete details about like the company culture at Deloitte and like what steps you take to actively promote that? Sure, and I'll ask Jeff or Pete to just jump in here. Um, in fact, Pete recently joined us from another firm, so he w would maybe even have an interesting perspective on what he observes coming in. Uh, the culture is, I've always called it relaxed professionalism. So it's a place where we're, we work very hard, uh, we're completely focused on helping our clients be successful, like I talked about earlier, and um, that's you know job one. But we um, really like each other. We have a great um, culture of um, collegiality. And so we work hard and we play hard. And so you know, it's a group of very smart, motivated people from all over you know, every school you can imagine. And um, it, it's a little hard. It's one of those things that you experience it when you're on the inside of it. And it's very hard to describe. But um, relaxed professionalism is one of the things I've always liked to use as a description. Pete or Jeff, anything to add? I think collegial thrives. So that, yeah, that's what I would characterize it as. I think there's a, there's a spirit of, um, you're, you're out working, working on problems, there's a team spirit from the top down, it's a non-hierarchical, there's an assumption that everybody has a contribution to make and that teams are, um, can make a success. There's a, there's a lot of individual ownership and accountability Teams make things work better, both for the customer and for ourselves, and we carry that into the customer. And I think that is a, it's a difference from other um, services firms. Can I just follow up on that question? Yes. With regard to teams, do the teams continually get reformed for different projects, or do you tend to stay on a team for a long period of time? No, they get reformed for every project for the most part. So you might work at Apple on a project for three months, and then you go to you know, Applied Materials, and then you might go to Google, and then you go to Intel. And every time you move, both the nature of what you're delivering changes in some way, because the client's problem changes in some way, and the composition of the people you work with changes, almost always. So you rotate through lots of different teams and have exposure to, um, to you know, almost the whole practice. On behalf of BASA and SDVP, I want to thank, thank Teresa for coming today. Thank you. You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.